Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Mike Robbins is the author of three books, including his latest, Nothing Changes Until You Do. He's a well-known motivational keynote speaker and an expert in emotional intelligence. And Mike is here to talk about getting out of your own way to create lasting change in your life. Because you all know, I like lasting change, not quick fixes. Mike, hello and welcome to my show. Hey, Corinne, thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you. So I really enjoyed your book, Nothing Changes Until You Do. And um, I read a lot of books, as you can imagine, for this show. And um, the th- you had great stories and I also appreciated, like, for the, my listeners who can get overwhelmed, right? They they they're like bite sized stories, right? So it's yeah. as a busy parent, you can sit down for a moment, read a story, and then go off and think about it and percolate, <laughs> right? And then come back. Yeah. So it's perfect, yeah. especially for the overwhelmed people out there. Um, yeah. I wanted to talk to you first about you know the truth about creating lasting change, and and how that happens, and because I think a lot of times people think it's about changing their circumstances. Right. What do you have to say to that? Well, um, I mean, I have a lot, I guess, I could say about that. I mean, you know, the title <laughs> of my book is Nothing Changes Until You Do. And really, um, I mean, there's a couple core themes in the book, but one of them is really about, you know, and one of the chapters is called, it, it, you know, it's not the circumstances, it's you. And I think the tendency, and look, I fall into this trap myself, and I have to be mindful about it, is that it does really look like, you know... It just had a little more money. If we just had a nicer house, if it just you know had a little more time in the day, if I just lost ten pounds, whatever you know, we all have the things that we'd like to just adjust a little bit about the circumstances of our lives. The erroneous notion, though, is that that's what ultimately would create some deeper sense of peace or deeper sense of feeling good about ourselves or deeper whatever you know. And the reality ultimately is, and I think most of us kind of know this anyway, even as we're chasing around those external things, that the change really happens within ourselves. And I think it's an ongoing sort of lifelong journey to really get that and to practice that. And, you know, one of the reasons, Corinne, that I wrote this book and wrote it in the way that I did, as you mentioned, you know, the short chapters and the stories is just to share a lot of my own experience, you know, some of my challenges with this, some of my insights about it, but to really have an open, honest, you know, real conversation about what is most important to us and how do we actually change in positive, productive ways as opposed to a lot of the erroneous ways we try to. And what are those erroneous ways that people try to? Well, again, I think it's, it's, it's chasing some of those external things. And in and of themselves, I don't think any of the external things are, aren't important. It's not that it's not you know, hey, if we want to lose some weight or we want to make some money or we want to have a different house or we want to change our career or we want to fall in love or or deepen the relationship that we do have with our significant other or with our children. I mean, all those things are important. But again, I think the idea is that if the things outside change, you know, I think about it as a parent and I know you're a parent as well and there's probably many people listening to us as a parent, but it's like, I will say sometimes to my counselor, Eleanor, who I write about a lot in the book, 
um, you know, my kids are really stressing me out. And she'll say, no, they're not. <laughs> and I say, what do you mean? And she said, well, Mike, the stress is actually inside of you. And it's, it's not really stress. What is it? What's coming out? Well, I'm feeling frustrated or I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm feeling irritated or ineffective. Or, and she's like, okay, let's look at those things because that's really what's coming up. It's not about your girls. My girls are eight and five. And, you know, I mean, they're good kids, but they're kids. They drive me crazy sometimes, right? There are times I'm like, what is, what is going on? Like, you know, and, and the thing about it is to really, oh, what a great opportunity for me to deal with my own impatience, my own judgment, my own fear and scarcity, and all the things that come up that I don't particularly enjoy experiencing emotionally. But if I make it about my kids, make it about my girls, and I think, oh, when they get out of this phase, it'll be better or easier or whatever, <laughs> that, that's like crazy. You know, I mean, right? You've raised kids and stepkids and the whole bit. It's like, it, it just, it never ends. It's, it's relentless in a sense. But, but parenthood, and even people listening to us who aren't parents, we could you know, fill in the blank with our job, with other things. So we think it's about, oh, I have this stressful boss. Oh, I have this crazy deadline. I, no, really, what we have is we have ourselves and our experience of life. And if we can bring it back, not to be selfish or self-absorbed, but keep bringing it back to I'm the common denominator in everything that happens in my life. And so when I change or when I go deeper in myself or I let go of something or I whatever that actually everything around me will change. If I keep chasing all the circumstances and situations and thinking if I just alter those a little bit, it just that's the erroneous thing that we do. You know, it's so funny because we do, we 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 want to blame those other people, right? Or there yeah. are our children and and it's not them. And if we can look at it as a way of, okay, what what is it that's bothered I'm bothered with, right? What right. are the triggers? What is the message or what is the the opportunity to learn in here? Yeah, that would be great. Or sometimes even with clients, I'll have clients that will be like, okay, I hate my job or I hate my boss. And I'm like, whoa, you know, let's those people until you learn the lesson, they will continue to keep showing up in your life. Absolutely. Right. So let's learn the lesson here. And if you want to switch it, go to a new job, that's fine. Right. But let's learn how to deal with this here so that when you go, those same people, they don't trigger you because it's otherwise it's the same people with a different name and a different face. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think there's there's an example that I share and nothing changes until you do of I was complaining to some you know, to a mentor of mine about some people that were really bugging me. This was a number of years ago and I was, you know, I was getting on these people were getting on my nerves and they went, you know, what's wrong with them and why don't they see it this way? And you know, I mean, we all have this experience at times in life that people can bug us and it really does seem like it's them. And he listened to me pretty compassionately for a while a while and then he asked me a really simple but poignant question. He said, Mike, who's always at the scene of the crime? <laughs> And I said, what do you mean? He said, who's the common denominator in all these relationships? And I was like, oh, yeah, that would be me. And, and again, I think it's just realizing, like to your point, and it's so true, that if, we're, if we don't really do the inner work that we need to do, whatever that may be in the moment, make peace with ourselves, make peace with certain aspects of life, if you will, that same situation or that same dynamic will keep showing up. You know, there's one of my favorite teachers and authors who we sadly lost last year is Debbie Ford. Mm -hmm. And Debbie wrote many books. Her first book was called Dark Side of the Light Chasers. And all her work is on shadow work. And one of the things that Debbie says, and my wife and I had a chance to get to know her and do workshops with her. And, and I love this quote from Debbie. And I think about it all the time. It's like, whatever you can't own, owns you. And another way that she would say it is whatever you can't be with won't let you be. So like as an example, let's just say if, you know, something that really irritates us in life is people who are pushy, right? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, fine. And, and look, I'm not a huge fan of people who are pushy, but like, let's just say that's something that keeps – why all these pushy people, these selfish people, these – what Debbie would say, and, and I agree with her from a shadow perspective, is that that's a representation of the dark side of your shadow. It's manifesting itself in the actions and qualities of other people. Now, again, in a, in a practical way, this makes no sense. What do you mean? That's, it's about them. It's not about me. But we all kind of know, and I believe at sort of a deeper metaphysical level, that's what's happening. People are showing up as mirrors. They're showing up as teachers for us. So if we can't make peace with, oh, where's the part in me that's pushy? Or where's the part in me that's selfish? And really own that part, love that part, accept that part of ourselves. Not that we want to walk around in life being pushy <laughs> and selfish, right? But, but the more you own it, the more you make peace with it. Oh, yeah, you know what? There's times I can be pushy. There's times, and actually, there's times being pushy is really an important aspect of life. You want to be pushy when push comes to shove and you really need to advocate for your child or for yourself or get something. You know what I mean? There's times that being selfish, quote unquote, is actually a really healthy thing because, again, I think of it in the context of parenting, like taking care of yourself as opposed to being a martyr about always serving your children or the people around you. I see this in the corporate work I do all the time, the overworked, overburdened manager who's stressed out. It's like, okay, you're managing everybody and trying to take care of everyone else, but are you taking care of yourself? So again, making peace with those things, two things happen. You start to embrace that and go, wow, there's actually some positive aspects of this quote negative thing. And by the way, the more peace we make within ourselves about that, the less it'll have to show up in those pushy and selfish people who keep bugging us. It's just the way it works. And, and that's a really excellent point for people to realize that that ownership, right? And then instead yep. of, because otherwise, if we don't own it, and we try to run from it. That doesn't really work because it keeps showing up. No. Right? And um, and then for a lot of people, it'll trigger like a shame storm. And then that creates disconnection, as we know from Brene Brown's work. Yes. Um, so with, with this idea that, you know, we will look, um, we can look at those judgments that we have as others, as opportunities. They're almost kind of like messengers, aren't they? To for, sure. for us, of what can we learn? How can there be strengths and weaknesses? So it's not this, you know, it's not this childlike mindset of good or bad, right? Pushy's bad, right? As, as you very well explained, there's times that it can be a great thing for us, and there's times that it may actually get in our way of what we want. Yeah. Well, I, I, I love the idea, the distinction between value judgments and being judgmental. And this is really basic, but I think about this a lot and I often find myself talking about this when I'm speaking to groups in particular about this concept. And the idea is like we make value judgments all day, every day, right? What to wear, what to eat, where to go, um, choices. We make all kinds, just li anyone listening to us right now, there's a judgment, a value judgment being made. This is your show is valuable. This conversation is valuable, is interesting. If it's not, then you make another decision like, I'm going to turn this off, right? Mm -hmm. There's no value. And that's important. We have to. And we're inundated more than ever in the history of humanity with choices and options and things that we can do and pay attention to for better or worse in our culture these days, right? But it's what value judgments are relative placement of discernment who we choose to spend time with, what we choose to focus on, where we choose to spend our money, all kinds of things. And those are really important. And we want to be mindful and conscious about those things. Yet at the same time, if we think about it being judgmental, although it sounds just like semantics, it's a completely different paradigm. That steps into the paradigm of right and wrong. We then get righteous about some of the value judgments. I'm right. This is the right way to do this. This is the right way to be. This is the right way to eat. This is the right way to parent. This is the right way to exercise, whatever. That's where the problem comes in. And judgmentalness filled with that righteousness 
does a couple things. First of all, it separates us from other human beings. Righteousness is one of the most separating energies that we carry as humans, right? That So if you and I, it's fine to disagree and debate and discuss, but if I get righteous about it, now there's a wall or a line, whether I'm overt and I tell you about it or not, I'm like, oh, you know, Corinne's one of those people. She's not like me. <laughs> or the other thing that we do, it actually separates us from ourselves. So it's, it's damaging and, and hurtful to other people and to us when we're being judgmental. And so it's a state of being. And, and again, it sounds semantical, but if you start to pay attention, we all know the difference when we're actually, no, you know, that I don't choose to do that, or that's not what I'm going to do, or that doesn't work for me, or what, and it can't even be a passionate no, but the righteousness is a whole other level. And that a lot of times the judgmentalness is really what creates problems for us in our lives, not just in our interpersonal relationships. And that's a place it shows up, but even within ourselves, because we have a tendency to be really judgmental towards ourselves, right? And that's the shame storm you were talking about that Brene Brown talks so much about. We judge ourselves so harshly. We eat food that we know isn't really what we want to be eating. And instead of forgiving ourselves for it and making a different choice, we say, oh, that's, you're, a terrible, you're a terrible person. What's wrong with you? You know better than that. Like I literally just had that happen to me, which will happen sometimes for me when I start eating sugar is like I go crazy, right? Like I, I can't have just a little bit of chocolate. I have to have like all of it, right? And I know this about myself, but I was speaking last week at this event and they gave me these little chocolates as like a thank you gift. You know, it was like I'm kind of thinking like I didn't want to be rude in front of the group and say, please, could you keep these? I don't want them. But I took them and I put them in my bag and I thought I'll bring them home and I'll give them to my girls, and we don't give them lots of chocolate, but it'll be fine, whatever. My, wife, my wife's really good. Michelle's really good at having just a little bit of chocolate. So anyway, I'm in the car, and I'm driving home. It's a long drive back after this event, and I like stop, and I go get some, something to eat, and I just want something a little sweet, and I'm looking. I, oh, you know what? Uh, I'll have a little chocolate, and I eat it, and two things happen. Number one, I went crazy. Number two, it wasn't even that good. So now <laughs> I'm like mad. Why did I do that? Why did I do that? And then I start to eat a little more and it's like, this isn't even good. So I stop at a store and get something that I really like <laughs> and I eat the whole thing. And then I'm sitting in the car and I feel bad physically, like within 20 minutes, right? And I'm also starting to feel horrible emotionally. And the voice is coming in my head. See, there you go again. See, all the negative. You're an idiot. You're a loser. You're bad. I mean, it was amazing how fast that started to happen. And then I caught myself took a breath and was like, okay, I don't have to listen to that voice. I don't have to, because that's not the truth. All I did was eat some chocolate. All I did was eat some sweets. And maybe I can make a different choice the next time. And maybe that's not the healthiest thing for me to do. But like, it didn't hurt anybody. I didn't, right? I mean, it's like, you know, in context, it was like sort of talking to myself, as I love Brene Brown says, is talk to yourself as though you're talking to someone you really love. And that was the conversation that I attempted. And for the most part, was successful at having for the rest of the drive home. And then in my meditation the next morning was like, use that as an opportunity. And I think everybody listening to this can relate. It doesn't, it's not about the chocolate and whatever your particular issue may be, but it's talking and acting so harshly and so critically towards ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we like to beat ourselves up, don't we? Yeah. And it's, isn't, it's so counterintuitive to be compassionate. I mean, that's one of the, the taglines of your book is a guide to self-compassion and getting out of your way. And how does, you know, I've had Kristen Neff, Dr. Kristen Neff on, we've talked about self-compassion, but for those yep. who haven't listened to that, how does self-compassion actually help us change in, or go in the direction that we want? 
Yeah, it's really important. I'm so glad you brought up Kristen Neff, who, as you and I were talking about before we got on the air here, I had a chance to connect with her recently and interview her myself and and learn more about her work. And I've read her book, Self-Compassion, which is fantastic. And, you know, her work, the the thing that I would say that I learned from her and I think is so important, you know, the distinction between self-esteem and self-compassion, that self-esteem is about you know, a sort of global assessment we make of our relative worth. I'm a good person. I'm a bad person. I'm good at this. I'm bad at it. You know, again, it goes back to kind of the <laughs> judgmentalness if you think of it. But self-esteem is important for us to have high self-esteem, think highly of ourselves. But, at the, but the distinction in self-compassion is really kind of breaks down into three elements. And, and Kristen F. talks about this in a great way that I love, that it's about mindfulness, awareness. How am I interacting with myself? So me the other day, last week in the car, listening to myself start to beat myself up, that voice in my head start to get really loud. What did you do? You're bad. You shouldn't. All that stuff. And we all do that a lot. We're just not all that aware of it. So first step is start to be more mindful of that voice that I call it the gremlin, whatever you call it, that critical negative self-talk. The second part of self-compassion is about kindness. Can we bring kindness to ourselves in the moment? It's not about good or bad, right or wrong. It's a sense of kindness, a sense even of empathy. Again, we, and we all know how to do this, and we do it with others, you know, children, pets, people we love. People, it's harder sometimes with people we have a real strong connection to, sometimes our spouse or whatever. It can be difficult at times to bring that kindness, but we know how to do that. Just people we love and care about. We, oh, but can we turn that inward and do it to ourselves? Kind, loving, empathetic, forgiving, Right, and the third piece, and this is where I think it's really important, and I, I love this part of her of Kristen F's work related to self compassion is common humanity, to realize that we're not alone. And you know, one of the reasons I wrote my book, or in the way that I did, and and why I share in my own work as openly and as vulnerably as I do, is part of what I'm attempting to do is continue to heal myself and go through my own process and just work stuff out, (laughs) but share it in a way that hopefully can help other people. And the underlying message of my entire book, if you will, if I could break it down to one simple thing is you're not alone. We're all in this human thing together. And you know what? There's times it's wonderful and there's times it's really painful. And most of the time it's relatively confusing. At least that's been my experience of 40 years on the planet. And I think that we don't often tell the truth about that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And especially in the world of self-help and personal growth. And I respect and admire so many of my friends and colleagues and all the people who are out there in the world, yourself included, trying to make the world a better place, trying to help people and empower people. But I think one of the things that we do unnecessarily is try to claim ownership and expertise in things and give people, here are the tenets for how to live your life. And I think sometimes it's actually filled with a certain amount of shame and sort of false confidence that like, I'm going to tell you the 10 steps to living a perfect life and then you go follow them. And most of us fall short because there aren't 10 steps to living a perfect life. It doesn't doesn't exist, right? So anyway, I mean, that's just a back to the like, the common humanity of self-compassion is to realize, oh, when I'm feeling this, shame, when I'm feeling this self-criticism, when I'm feeling this inferiority, I'm not alone in that. You know, my friend Holly wrote this great post on her Facebook page last week about the gifts of envy and how she talked about her own process of feeling envious when she sees certain people post things and they're off in, on, you know, on the beach in Tahiti having this great vacation or whatever. It's easy to go, oh gosh, my life's terrible in comparison to that or I'm never going to have that. Or, and she talked about we can go into that real negative place of judging them or judging ourselves, or we could use it as a real opportunity to celebrate 
their success or their whatever it is that they're seeing and also have more compassion for ourselves and go deeper into what's my desire? What do I really want? Oh, I'd really like to have some experience like that as opposed to seeing it in a negative way, see it in a more positive way. And that comes back, I think, to self-compassion and this piece of common humanity. Anything and everything that we experience emotionally, we're not alone in it. Every other human being on the planet has experienced some version of it, even if the circumstances have been different. Well, and I appreciate you bringing that up because I do think that, and maybe I'm wrong, but I've kind of noticed a shift in self-help. And I don't know, you know, I attribute that to Dr. Brene Brown, but, <laughs> um, you know, where before it was like, oh, here's the self-help and this is what you need to be doing. And I remember years ago before I had the show, I thought, oh, well, they just have this perfect life, yeah. right? And it's just me. And the reason that I don't have this perfect life is because I'm so messed up or look at all right. this, right? And one of the first people that set me straight on that was Martha Beck when she yes. said, oh, no, I've been to hell and back, right? Yep. And, but I see this conversation happening more and more where people will go vulnerable. I mean, that's one of the things that I thought about with your book is, you know, here you are, right? You're a motivational speaker. You've achieved, you know, high levels of success and you went to one of the best universities in the world and you're talking about your counselor, Eleanor, yep. right? And I mean, you're really opening yourself up up there. Yeah. Well, and I think someone like Martha Beck, who I think is fantastic, as Brene Brown, who we've been talking about, Debbie Ford, who I mentioned earlier. I mean, I do think there's a number of trailblazers in a way who've opened themselves up personally, vulnerably, and at the same time, it doesn't actually damage their credibility as teachers, as people that we can listen to and be inspired by. I think an older model of the idea of I've got to be perfect or at least have the appearance of perfection or at least, you know, mastery and there, therefore I have credibility to teach. Um, you know, a lot of the work that I do is in the corporate world and I'm often talking to lead leaders, especially senior leaders in these organizations who have an enormous amount of pressure and expectation on them. And I'll say to them, as I often do, a lot of the speeches I give, a lot of the seminars I deliver, a lot of the groups I'm facilitating, the theme of it is... Be real. Be vulnerable. Allow the people around you to see who you really are. And what's interesting is, and I was just at an event actually in Canada a couple weeks ago, and someone said this thing to me, and he's like, look, man, you know, I'm almost 60 years old. I've been doing this for a long time in the business world. I've been a leader. And he goes, I agree with everything you're talking about. He's like, but this is not the way that I was raised. It's definitely not the way I was sort of indoctrinated into the business world at all. And he said, I think it's the, the wave of the future. And I think part of it, we were having this conversation about millennials and the younger generation. And I think some of it's being driven by that. Because look, for all of the potential negativity that can happen with all of our social media and everyone sharing everything all the time, and I do think there's a downside and a dark <laughs> side to it, the, the light side is that it's now more incumbent upon all of us to get real because people aren't buying the BS. People aren't buying the perfect life. And that's not just for those of us in the self-help arena per se, although we can look to that as an example, but I think it's true everywhere. And I think, you know, I remember someone saying something, again, some of this I think is generational. When Barack Obama was running against John McCain in 2008 in our election here in the US, 25 years difference in their age, right? And what they said was, you know, Obama grew up in the, in the era of people sitting on the couch with Oprah and talking about their feelings. 
<laughs> right? Yep. I mean, just as a culture, yep. right? whereas John, John McCain grew up in a very different era. And so there was a way they were trying to explain, like, why is Obama resonating with certain people, particularly younger people? Why is McCain? And it was less about politics. It wasn't about left and right. It was more style and it was more sort of personality. And it was just this way that, like, they were saying he's just kind of speaking to a larger cross-section of at least a certain generational population in the U.S., and, and so I thought that was interesting. And I do think there's more and more. And I, I acknowledge and really admire Brene Brown as an example because I think she's really leading the way with her work. She's talking to us about being vulnerable, but she's being vulnerable in the process of talking to us about being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that to me is the most important thing. Well, she's living it to give it. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, you know, it's funny because, you know, the the book that I wrote previous to Nothing Changes Until You Do is all about authenticity. And I sometimes, and prior to that, I wrote a book on appreciation and, and people will like, I'll get introduced. Mike's an expert in appreciation or he's an expert in authenticity. And I, I, I sort of appreciate it. And it, sometimes we, it's even in my bio and I'm always like, I have this interesting reaction to that where it's like, okay, I guess, but I think if I'm going to go speak to people about appreciation or I'm going to speak about authenticity, it's less about teaching principles of that. And it's more about embodying that. Um, for me, you know, it's like Gandhi said, you know, my life is my message. Mm-hmm. And I think that's easier said than done in a lot of ways. And it's easier to look outside of ourselves and go, oh, that person's doing it than it is for us to actually live it. And for everybody listening, this, whether you coach people or try to inspire people or motivate them in any way, all of us want to have a positive impact on the people around us as parents, as friends, as coworkers, as family members. So this is about us and how we interact with life, whether we deem ourselves to be a teacher or an expert in anything or not. And I think it's an important lesson for all of us to embody. Years ago, I had uh, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor on my show. And one of the things she talks a lot about is being responsible for the energy you bring into a space, right? Because we're all connected. And I I think that goes in line with what you're just saying, you know, is, is knowing that, okay, how can, you know, what I do, what I say can make an impact and yep. it doesn't have to be the impact of, oh, I need to go to Africa and save a child. But maybe that impact is what I say to, you know, the cashier when yep. I'm checking out with my groceries. Yeah, absolutely. And, and remembering that, I think, you know, someone asked me a question recently is sort of about finding mission and purpose and sort of how do I find my authentic self? And I, I, I appreciate the question. And I said, look, I think we get caught up in this erroneous notion that, you know, it's going to be some big thing, right? It's going to be that I'll go to Africa or I'm going to figure out, I'm going to start a nonprofit organization that's going to end world hunger. And, I'm, you know, and, mm-hmm. and listen, let's do that. Let's start as many nonprofits that are going to focus on ending world hunger as possible. But it can be like you, it's in the simple day-to-day interaction. It's the great, you know, Mother Teresa quote that, you know, it's about doing things with great love as opposed to great things. Do you know what I mean? It's like, how do we interact with people on a daily basis? You know, years ago when I was first, you know, part of my story, Corinne, you know this from, from reading my book. I mean, I, I played baseball for many years, right? I, I grew up playing baseball and, and I got drafted out of high school by the Yankees. I didn't end up signing with the Yankees because I got an opportunity to play baseball at Stanford. I go to Stanford, I play there. I, I get drafted out of Stanford by the Kansas City Royals, sign my contract. You know, I ended up, I go into the minor leagues, which is what you have to do first in, in pro baseball, even if you get drafted by a major league team like I did and I got hurt. And so my career ended. I was 23. I hurt my pitching arm. And it was a very painful experience. I write a lot about this in all my books. A little, I touch on it a little bit in this, in this new one. But 
I learned a lot of things through that experience. The biggest lesson I learned was about appreciating myself and what I had while I had it as opposed to after the fact because I didn't spend a lot of time as an athlete appreciating myself and I just spent most of my time thinking I wasn't good enough. And then when it was all over, I was like, oh, you know what? <laughs> I was really good, but I didn't know it and I wasn't enjoying it as much as I could have. But, but the deeper point of me even bringing this up is when I moved into my desire. So I, I worked in the dot-com world for a couple of years and then I got laid off and then I was in this question of, well, what, do I, what am I going to do? I'd been so focused for so many years. You know, what's going to be my path? And I had this inkling about wanting to speak and wanting to write and wanting to teach and I didn't know exactly what it looked like and I was definitely scared and I was young. I was in my mid-20s. But I had a conversation with Dan Millman who wrote Way of the uh-huh. Peaceful Warrior. And, and Dan had been someone... I, there were a series of books that I read, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff by Richard Carlson. Um, Dan Millman's Way of the Peaceful Warrior was another one. My girlfriend at the time was really into Sark, who writes great books. She wrote a book called Succulent Wild Woman. And she, I just was like finding these books and they were inspiring me personally. But I was like, I want to do that. I want to do what they do. And I had the opportunity to meet Dan Millman in the fall of 2000. And I wasn't working at the time and I was just tr- wanting to get my business started but he said a couple of really important things to me in that conversation. And Dan and I have stayed friends and I love him and love his work and have appreciated his mentorship over the years. But he said two things in that conversation to me that really stuck out. The one thing he said to me, because I was like, you know, I feel like everything I want to say, everyone's already said, like I have no new ideas, nothing original. He said, first of all, Mike, I believe there's one light and there's many lamps. So your job is to just have your light shine as bright as possible And that really stuck with me. The second thing he said is don't get caught up in this notion that you have to go out in the world and write books and lead workshops and do these things to be someone, to your point about what Jill Bolte-Taylor said. He said, look, you know, I could hire you if you want to come work for a spiritual organization and work for me and you could like take out the trash and paint the fence and like do stuff around my house and say, hey, I work for Dan Millman, right? But like, would that work be spiritual by nature? And he said, it's not about the work, it's about you. So it's what you bring to it. It's really your intention. It's your focus. You could go sell insurance. You could go garden. You could go anything. Like, Don't get caught up in the vocation. Be more focused on your intention and what you bring to it. And I've thought about that a lot over the years, Corinne, because I got to tell you, there's been times, and I write about this in Nothing Changes Until You Do, about some of the times that I've gotten really off track, even in my passionate pursuit of my own calling, which I do believe the work that I'm doing is a real calling for me. But when my ego gets in the way and when it turns into right, how many people like me on Facebook mm-hmm. and how, how many books do I sell and all that erroneous stuff, I'm not tapped into what I'm really doing and why I'm doing it. I'm tapped into something else that has nothing to do with my real calling. It has everything to do with my identity. You're tapped into other people's measurements of success or exactly. other, you know, the societies, these, these conditioning that's put out there that I, I don't, you know, I've yet to talk to anybody that says that rings true for them. Yeah. And the hard part is, though, that we know it, but we still get caught in it, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we know at some deep level, okay, my worth and my value isn't about how much money I make. Mm-hmm. Yet we still forget that. And it's not that it's not important how much money we make, but we just attach a bunch of stuff to it. Or my, you know, fill in the blank. Again, it's like if I get a certain amount of recognition or if I accomplish something or if I finally have a baby or whatever, even the things in their mo- they're really important to us. What we do, though, is attach way too much to it, and then we're sitting there. And, and I remember this as an athlete. I attach so much to winning and losing. And this is one of the things I actually hated about playing baseball, especially – I mean, I was really good at it, but I'm in college and I'm playing professionally. It's like I lived and died 
based on, and I was a pitcher, so I had to wait like five days in between the games that I pitched. So every time it was like, did I have a good game or a bad game? And that good game made me feel good about myself, and that bad game made me feel bad about myself. And I realized that I was the one doing that. It wasn't about the game. It was me, and I was buying into the collective consciousness of when my statistics and my numbers looked a certain way, that meant I was good. And when they didn't, that meant I was bad. And if I threw seven scoreless innings, which was a good game, versus I got knocked out in the third inning and we lost 10-2, to two, that somehow had something to do with my value as a human being. And it was a really painful way for me to go through life. And I still, at 40 years old, all these years later, even though I know better and have done a lot of inner work, I catch myself from time to time still doing the same thing. And I got to remember, and I'll say to myself lovingly, Mike, stop keeping score. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why I think it's a practice, right? Because you yep. and I, we understand this. We've seen the research. We've done the trainings, right? We 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 live and breathe this stuff. Yep. But then there's that, like I what I the story that I always use is that you know I have an iMac computer that's sitting on my desk, right? It's from I don't know a couple of years ago. But remember those iMac computers that were like the candy colors. Yes, of course. And I'm sure the Apple people would want to shoot me right now, but that's okay. So <laughs> what I say is that, you know, like there, you know, when I get that message that, oh, something crashed and send it to Apple, right? So yep. send the message to Apple is there's some programming from the candy colored iMacs that are still in my newer <laughs> iMac, but it no longer works with whatever operating system I have, right? And there's some conflicts. And that's the way I think of our brain and the conditioning yes. that we have is yes. that we know this stuff and we know this new way of being that's different than maybe how we grew up and yep. the programming that we grew up with from all areas, from our family, yep. from media, from our coaches, from our whoever, right? From all the people that touched our lives. And yep. And then it's just about, it's that awareness that, you know, you spoke to earlier of, of going, okay, here's this conditioning. Is yep. this true for me? Yeah. Well, and, and absolutely. I mean, I think that's so spot on and such a great analogy. And I think it's, it's going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of self-compassion. Can we have that awareness, that mindfulness, that kindness and be tapped into the common humanity of it? And then from that place, choose. Eleanor, my counselor, often asks me the question. She'll say, who's driving the bus right now? And, so, and we've talked about this, and the metaphor she often uses with me, again, is that like who we are, there's a whole bunch of different aspects of ourselves. And, and thinking of it as different people on the bus, right? And it's like there's your childhood self, there's your adolescent self, there's your young adult self, there's your ego self. There's all these different sort of positive, negative, but they're all aspects of you. And we don't want to throw them off the bus per se, but it's like when the seven-year-old version of myself is driving the bus, there's a major problem, <laughs> right? Because he doesn't know how to drive. And he's definitely not, not only does he not have the skill or the awareness, but he's not prepared or capable of that. You know, the adolescent me might actually have know how to drive a little bit, but still, I don't want the 16-year-old version of me running my life because he's scared and operating in a very different, even the young adult. And, you know, one of the things that Eleanor said to me that was so poignant about this and this whole idea of sort of child, adolescent, young adult is the child within us is often asking the question, Am I getting enough? Because that's part of, no matter how we were raised, how, no matter how wonderful or awful our childhood was, there's some element, and I know this having a five and an eight-year-old, constant, there's a constant feeling as a child that we're not getting enough, it's not fair, it, we're not loved enough, it's not, you know, some version of that when we go to that sort of dark, more negative place, right? So that's the question of the child, am I getting enough? The question of the adolescent is, am I good enough? Right? And think about our, ourselves in adolescence, feeling 
ugly, feeling flawed, feeling not cool, feeling not fit. Even if you were the cool kid, and I was a pretty cool kid. I was. I mean, I was popular. I was like on the baseball team and a good athlete. I got good. I did all the things you were supposed to do, and I still felt that a lot. And I know every single kid. And when I go talk in high schools and I'm around adolescents, like that's part of adolescence. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? And mostly feeling, no, I'm not. I'm not as good as them, whoever they are, right? And then the young adult is asking, am I doing enough? And that's part of like our culture is obsessed these <laughs> days with like working hard and working hard and working hard and going and going in 24 hours a day and constantly connected and like do, 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 do. So those three questions, am I getting enough? Am I good enough? Am I doing enough? And what I love, Eleanor always says to me, and the spiritual adult, the wise adult in you says yes. To all three of those <laughs> questions, right? Yes. Yes, you're getting enough. It's not perfect, but you're getting plenty. And in fact, there's way more than you're not even aware of, right? Are you good enough? Absolutely. And by the way, it's not a competition anyway, and you're good enough, and so is everybody else. And are you doing enough? Of course you are. Yes. Are there different things you could do? Probably. There's probably a lot of stuff you could do less of and maybe some things you could do more. But again, it's the adult comes in with that wise yes. And then it's like literally, and I think about this, I sometimes literally metaphysically, if you will, I go in and and visualize a bus and I will watch myself, the adult version of me, sit down in the driver's seat and literally turn around to everybody and say, I got it. Mm -hmm. I got it. I can can drive this bus. Because my life, my 40-year-old life, my life as a father, my life as a husband, my, my, my life as an author, the younger versions of myself actually aren't prepared for this life. So they would be scared, understandably, and doing weird and crazy things, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a way that I try to integrate it for myself. And the idea in life, I think, for us, again, is to be the chairman or chairwoman of the board of all the different aspects of ourselves and integrate those as healthily and as lovingly and as compassionately as we can. And then we're in real time in the present moment. So to your point, if we know this, then we integrate what we know and it becomes practice and it becomes much easier to manifest in the reality of our lives. And we don't have to fight so hard against ourselves all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that practice part is so important. And then, you know, when we go, hey, yes, you know, I am doing enough. I am good enough. I am getting enough, right? Now we're rooted in this place. We're not in this place of scarcity, but we're in this place of calm where we can be, where we can access the resourcefulness that we have to figure it out. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So, absolutely. um, I want to talk about with this compassion piece because sometimes people misunderstand compassion as kind of like, oh, I'm going to be compassionate to myself. And that will mean it's okay. You know, you can have the excuse for not accomplishing X and people get in, you know, that am I doing enough? How can I be compassionate? Because I have high standards. Yes. Can you speak to that? (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, I gave a talk at Google a couple weeks ago and a woman asked that exact question. I said, what makes it hard for us to be compassionate to ourselves? And she goes, well, if I'm too compassionate to myself, I won't achieve my goals. I'll get lazy. I'll, you know, and I so love that she said it Mm -hmm. because I was like, thank you. That's a real concern that many of us have myself included. But here's the thing. Compassion isn't about making excuses. It's not about letting ourselves off the hook. It's not about not having a certain amount of healthy high standards. And the way I love to think about this, there's this whole body of work that I think is fascinating that I'm just learning about these days. It's called growth mindset. Uh-huh. And, Carol Dweck. And you know, Carol Dweck. And, you know, and, and the way I sort of break down, and I talk about this growth mindset, again, a lot of times in the business world, and I'm talking to leaders and managers, how do you create that in yourself and inspire that in others? And the basic way that I 
sort of like to describe it is it's about having high expectations, high standards, and high nurturance at the same time. So the nurturance piece comes in the compassion, the empathy for ourselves. The high standard piece comes in the like challenging ourselves, pushing ourselves, taking risks, stepping out of our comfort zone, really going for it. And doing so though, realizing that we're going to fail sometimes. We're going to screw some things up. We're going to not know what we're doing. That's okay. You know, for years, I don't do it as much anymore, but I coached people one-on-one a lot for many years. And I would often say to my coaching clients, if you're meeting and exceeding all the goals you have for yourself, they're probably not big enough. And I wasn't advocating that they become obsessed with accomplishment, but like keep challenging yourself, keep holding a higher vision for yourself of what's possible because that's going to challenge you to grow and to stretch and to learn and to change. So, so it, it can sometimes seem counterintuitive, but the growth mindset idea is that we keep holding those high standards, but we do so with compassion. So we're not harsh to ourselves when we don't measure up, quote unquote, we don't attain the goal, whatever it is. Because the thing about goals, whatever they are, they're all they are really there is to facilitate growth and to facilitate focus. It's never about the goal. And that's one of the things that we've all learned. Every single person listening to us, and Korean's happened to you many times, happened to me, I'm sure, you've achieved something big that you had as a goal. It's like, I really want to achieve that, or I really want to experience that. And then you have it, you get it. And it's kind of this, like sometimes it can feel good. Oh, wow, I did it. Awesome. And at some point, sometimes very soon after, sometimes maybe it takes a little while, it wears off. And there's actually sometimes some sadness and some disappointment because you know what? It didn't fill that hole I thought it was going to fill. Yep. Oh, you know what? One day I'll get married and oh, it'll be great. One day I'll have a baby, right? That's one of the hardest parts, I think, of parenthood is that it's this goal for a lot of people for so long and then you have a baby and it's so hard and it's so painful <laughs> and it's so not what you expect and you're like, okay, maybe I'm crazy, but like, why did I have that goal? You know, it's this whole confusion of things because it's so many things, but it's nothing like you expected. But sometimes it's even more, just a more benign thing. It's I want to achieve this. I want to experience this. I want to go to this place. I want to, you know, get that kind of job. I want to whatever. And it doesn't, Fulfill it. because, And then what we do, instead of going, huh, maybe I shouldn't be so obsessed and attached to goals, maybe more focused on my internal experience, we go, nope, it was the wrong goal. Wasn't good enough. Wasn't big enough. Wasn't right. It's got to be something else. And so we keep chasing the proverbial carrot. So again, I don't think, I think that if we could, if all of us, every single one of us could bring more compassion and empathy to ourselves in pursuit of whatever the goals that we have are, we would not only be more effective in creating and attaining and achieving the goal, it would be way easier and more fun. You know, one of the biggest insights I had writing, nothing changes until you do. Because I'm always in the, pro- you probably can relate to this, anything I go to create and, and work on and teach, there's always so many amazing lessons in it. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're painful, sometimes not so painful, but it's like, wow, what do I get to learn while I'm doing this? I was scared to write this third book as I write about it in the book itself because my experience of writing my first two books was challenging for me for different reasons, but neither of them were very pleasurable. We had two babies and I wrote two books in the span of three years, which was both exciting and extraordinary on many levels. And it was like drinking from a fire hose, <laughs> right? I just wasn't prepared for everything that was involved. And after my second book, I was disappointed. My ego was attached to like more book sales and more notoriety that didn't come. And financially, we got into a bit of a challenging situation, which I talked about. And we were in debt and 
underwater in our house. And so there were a lot of life circumstances that were like, whoa, wait a minute, time out. I got to rethink how I'm doing things and what I'm focused on. And so it was a painful but important process. But then in a practical sense, and life has, circumstances of life have changed for us in the last few years and financially things are much better and parenthood has gotten easier. It's still no walk in the park for us, but it's a lot easier than it was when the girls were much younger. And, and I started to think about writing this next book and I was like, you know, I'm scared to do another one because I think writing a book and promoting a book really hard for me. Like, I don't know if that's, you know, and I had this whole story in my mind. And as I was writing this book, I had this huge epiphany at one point. I realized, you know what? Writing this, because this, writing this book was actually pretty easy for me. It was a very different experience, which was fun. But I realized that the, writing the book is easy. It's dealing with myself is the hard part. <laughs> And that's true for anything. So fill in the blank. And look, some things come easier to us than others, but most of the things, if you look, think of everything in your life right now that you consider to be hard and challenging and difficult. More than not, it's probably you. Less about the thing, less about the relationship, less about the project, less about the circumstance. It's us, right? It's like the story we hold. Oh, this is hard. This is stressful. This is, I'm not good at this. I can't do this. This takes up too much time, blah, 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 whatever, fill in the blank. And it's like, no, when I'm really, when I was really at peace with myself, this book literally flew out of me. When I would start to doubt myself and get stressed out and get my head up, my you know what about it, then it became hard. But whenever I would get out of my own way, as lovingly and compassionately as I could, it was like, whoa. And I think about this with my wife. My marriage is fantastically wonderful and easy, except when I make it difficult, quite frankly. <laughs> my parenting, my girls, same thing. If they're so much fun, they're great, except when I start to really react and have a problem and like they should be different than they are, right? It's, yep. a, it's that thing that Byron Katie says that I love to quote is that when you argue with reality, you lose, <laughs> but only 100% of the time, right? Yep, absolutely. So, Mike, as we wrap up, what yes. are a couple of takeaways that you can give to the listeners about changing themselves? Well, I think one is a distinction between changing and fixing. So, fixing comes from a place of shame. Something's wrong, it needs to be fixed. And I think a lot of times our pursuit of, quote, change, our pursuit of, quote, growth is really about fixing. And so, what I would say is, again, have compassion for yourself with that desire that wants to fix, but look more deeply beneath it. Because change is really about choice. Wanting things maybe to be different, maybe things to be expanded or increased or decreased, that's fine. But, but notice the paradigm at which you're coming from as you approach change. The second thing that I would say is that it's much easier for us to change. Yes, it's an internal process. Yes, it's up to us. But it's much easier when we have support around us. And look, everyone's life circumstances are different. Some of us have more people in our lives than others. Some of us feel like we actively have more support than others. But every one of us, if you're listening to this interview, you've got support, both outside of yourself in people, but also internally. Whatever your own personal, even spiritual belief or practice is, there's a lot of support. So tapping into the support within you and outside of you and being willing to ask, that's the third thing that I would say as a takeaway is the like, it's okay to feel scared. It's okay to not know, but be willing to take the risk. You know, as, as the saying goes, the answer is always no if you don't ask. So being able to ask not only for support, but like, what do I want? And as Brene Brown loves to say, you can't get to courage without walking through vulnerability. So to really embrace the vulnerable, scary parts, knowing that that's all part of the process. That was great. Mike, thank you so much for being a guest today. It was great talking with you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. All right there. Some of the things that 
I thought about as Mike was talking was this idea about measurement of success. You know, how do you measure success? And that's something that I talk a lot about on the show with a variety of guests. I mean, Tess Vigilin, who used to be a host, a radio talk show host with NPR, that's one of the things that we talked about, you know, when it, when is enough enough? When are you enough? I mean, that's part of what taught my talks with Brene Brown about worthiness. And so this idea about measurement of success, I talked about this with Ariane de Bonvoisin, right, years ago, and she was young, she went to the London School of Economics, graduated at a young age, got her MBA at Stanford, right, she went and was a leading, She, as she likes to say, she had climbed a very tall ladder of success. She was uh, running a company that had $500 million dollars. Um, it was like a venture capitalist company. She was engaged to one of people's sexiest men, right? She was living from the outside what looked like the appearance of success. And on the inside, it wasn't aligned with how she measured success. And so those are things that we need to think about. I just had breakfast with this coach who's been a huge influence for my husband, and he's going to be a guest soon on my show. But he uh, he doesn't like to call himself a strength and conditioning specialist. He's an athletic development specialist, but he's a coach. And I asked him why he had left. You know, he was in this big Pac-10 school years ago. And I said, well, why did you leave? And he said, you know, it just, he wasn't having fun. It wasn't, if he had, if he had known what he knew now, he would have stayed and coached at high school, right? Where there was a lot more purity of the sport. But again, sometimes we don't know this about like what is success, we have this idea of success. I remember years ago I'd interviewed Martha Beck, I think my first interview or second one of like the so five we have. But um and I asked her about okay, this being a New York Times bestselling author and she said, you know, it's not until you achieve it that you realize that it's not it doesn't define you. And those aren't quite our words, but we have these things that we think this is what's going to make me right? Or this will make me worthy, but they're really empty. And as Mike talked about in the interview, it's like when we start to think in those terms, it's really driven from our ego. And it's more probably not, this is the word I I like to use, rooted from our best self, right? We're not rooted in a strength. We're in our ego and there's probably some fear that's coming with it. So it's not sustainable. So I really invite you to consider, you know, how do you measure success? What What is success? Are you thinking that success is something because that's in line with your values, that's in line with your strengths, that's in line with your priorities? Or are you thinking that you want to achieve this X of success because that's when you'll get approval from others, from somebody else? Maybe it's a, you know, a parent or a mentor or a boss or whoever it may be, Right. So what is your measurement of success? And that's highly personal. And there's no right or wrong. There really isn't. It's about what is in line with your values, what's in line with your strengths and your priorities. And for right now, I mean, those are things that can change and evolve as we go through different life stages as well. Um, at some time ago, I had a, a guest that I wanted to have on the show and we were going back and forth. And it was interesting because uh, her assistant was kept asking for the numbers and wanted to know the numbers, you know, of my listeners. And I finally just responded back and I said, that's not something that 
I share and I don't measure it. It's not, it's not splattered all over my website because I have a really big belief that everybody matters. And it's not just about how can I attract the masses, right? I mean, you look at mass media and TV and stuff, but how do you know what the impact is? And so I had sent her an email that I received that morning from a listener who had said, and this is a very common kind of email that I get or the common theme, but thank you so much. Your show has saved my life, right? Or thank you so much. Your show has helped me tremendously. And my comment back to her is, how do you measure that? Right. Well, later on, I, I found out because I'd um, met somebody who actually worked with this woman behind the scenes of her business. And um, one of the things that had happened is that this woman had become so focused on the numbers and list size. And, you know, we hear this like if you're in the whole Internet world or business world, entrepreneurial world, you know what I'm talking about. But it was so focused on that. And then so when she was out promoting stuff, you know, she would go she would was all about building her list, but then she owed a lot of people. And then so when they had come around, she started losing people off of her list because she had to kind of spam her list. So again, it goes back to what are your strengths, what are your values, and what are your priorities, right? And I really think about that a lot when I bring on guests for my show is how can this benefit you, right? Because ultimately it's about you, the listener. How can this help you? And when I talk about products that I like or things that I, you know, books that I read, it's it's always vetted because it's about, oh, can this help? I mean, even this morning at breakfast with Vern, we were talking and I'm like wanting to know what his book list is, right? And I was telling him, I'm like, oh my gosh, do you know about Brene Brown? Because I really think her work can help with um, female athletes when we can overcome shame, right? We can become shame resilient. And so when we got back to his hotel, he's like, what's that name again? He wanted to write it down. because he And he goes, when I get down to Stanford today, I'm going to be going to the bookstore and this is the book I'm going to go buy and I'm going to read it, right? That That's the kind of stuff that inspires me is that how can we spread information to just, you know, as Vern said this morning, to help get the message out. Because there's so much information, there's so much content that is really rooted from a place of fear, right? And then it gets us to do things that may be short term, but they're not long term and sustainable, you know, to really create the changes that we want in our lives versus we're going to make this short term fix and then we fry and die, right? Because we either get it, we can't sustain it, or, you know, we can't get it and then we make it mean that it's not possible for us. Right. But I think about how can we be in that growth mindset, like Carol Dweck has said, right? About we can test something and test and learn from it and grow. All the great coaches, athletes, business people, leaders that I know, it's that they have that growth mindset and maybe not in all areas of their life. Cause remember, Dr. Dweck had said, we're not all growth or all fixed. There's a continuum and there's different parts of ourselves. Right. So I really invite you to consider and start writing it down. What is your measurement for success? And maybe to get there, you want to start with what are your values? What are your strengths? What are your priorities? Right. Because maybe you have a young family. So the measurement of success may be, well, we're just going to get to the through the day and I'm going to make sure everybody is fed. And that can be a huge measurement of success. When my kids were little, that was a big deal. Right. So it is going to be an evolving, moving kind of target as you as you go through different life stages. But really, I invite you to think about that and knowing that when you're at your best, because this goes back to what Mike was talking about earlier, 
when he was ego driven, when he was worried about, can I, you know, pitch and how am I going to do today so that I can make sure that I get on the travel team, right? He's rooted more in a place of fear there. And fear is not bad. It can be a great way to ignite. It's just not sustainable. And then finally, I want to wrap up with a quick story. So my whole life, I was queen of getting in the way of myself. And I was a fast little kid and I had no idea because I was totally ignorant. I just loved to swim and and it just worked for my little introvert, shy self and didn't realize I was fast. And, and swimming is a pretty humble sport. So like when you go to a big swim meet, this like one really big age group meet, it's called Far Westerns. And uh, in other sports, they would call like Junior Olympics or, you know, the All-Star team or something. But swimming's not like that. It's starting to change. But it, it's just Far Western. So, you know, it's at a pool. It's not too far from my house. I didn't know anything different. But I was a fast little kid. Had no idea. And so then as I got older, people kept saying, oh, when is she going to make the next level? When is she going to make Junior Nationals? And I started to get freaked out because like, you know, Gay Hendricks talks about I had an upper limit problem, Right. How could that be possible for me? I'm not worthy yet. And it really scared me. And so I hid. I didn't have courage. And so then what happened was that I finally got out of my way. And I'll talk more about this story. But at some point, I finally did make that next level. And I made it to junior nationals. And I remember after I I qualified and I smashed the time by like two seconds, I got in, you know, I warmed down and I had to go uh, home because I had to go take a lifeguard training test. I was in high school. And I got in the car and I went, hmm, I'm still the same person that I was before I made this time. And I truly had a prerequisite of worthiness that I would be worthy once I made this, right? I did that to myself so often in my life. I will be worthy once I make this time. I will be worthy once I accomplish this in swimming. I'll be worthy once I make it to university. I will be worthy once I have this boyfriend I'll be worthy once I make X amount of money. I'll be worthy once I'm worth X amount. I'll be worthy once I, you know, weigh X. I had a lot of prerequisites to worthiness. And that really drove that approval horror that I had inside of me. And the thing was, is that it was like quicksand never filling me up. And so the more and more that I've gone through life and experienced it and reflected, I realized that it's, it's about me approving of myself. It's about being worthy of who I am. It doesn't mean that I have less goals or I don't want to achieve things because I do. But now I'm rooted in this place that I'm enough. And then that gives me that I just feel good. And then I really want to reach out and I want to, you know, go have breakfast with somebody like Vern Gambetta and learn from him and to be able to be a part of a conversation with somebody who's so brilliant and so, you know, smart um, and help so many people right? So I invite you to go into that place where you can be rooted in your wholeheartedness, rooted in your well-being, rooted in your strengths, and see what you can create from yourself from that place. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you, so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. 
with this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.